Well, you're turning up Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Let me just give you a word on a very important term. I'll use the term on several occasions in the sermon, and uh, we have already used it in some of the hymns that we sing, and I want to be sure it's clear in your mind. This is the word, the noun incarnation, or the adjective incarnate. There are English words in this word group, all of them formed from a Latin original. Incarnation is formed from the Latin preposition in and the noun caro, meaning flesh, with the addition of a suffix that turns the prepositional phrase in the flesh into a noun. So incarnation means enfleshment. Flesh in this usage does not mean meat or even body, but as so often in the New Testament Greek from which this usage comes, the human nature. So to speak of the incarnation is to speak of God the Son, the second person of the eternal triune God, taking to himself a human nature, so that he in a moment of time, at the moment of his conception in the womb of his virgin mother, became both God and Man, Two distinct natures in one person. This is, of course, the central mystery of our Christian faith, but also the fundamental assertion of the Christmas narrative in both Matthew and Luke. In Jesus Christ, God became also man for man's salvation. So when we say the incarnate Christ, we are referring to the Messiah who is both God and man. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. It is a point of the greatest conceivable importance that the narrative of the birth of Jesus is as unabashedly rooted in history as it is. During the reign of Augustus, while Quirinius was the governor. This will continue throughout the Gospels and indeed to the end of the New Testament. These wonderful things happened in those days, during the time of those governments and so on. If Jesus was born when Augustus was emperor, he was crucified when Tiberius was emperor. During the governorship of Pontius Pilate, while Caiaphas was the high priest, all figures known to us from other historical sources. Whatever others may sometimes think, or you may hear others sometimes say, this story, this history, this account, this narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ's birth is not mythology in any accepted sense of the word. The authors of the Gospels were writing what everyone understands to be history, a narration of things that happened in the world. People will make their own judgments about whether these reports faithfully reproduced what actually happened, but there can be no mistaking the fact that the gospel writers themselves intended their readers to understand that these events happened in precisely the same way that Augustus's reign or Quirinius's governorship happened or occurred. Christ's birth was a real event in the real world in the same way that taxes are real, and we all know how real taxes are. 
into the everyday world of that time, into its population, its politics, its social currents, came suddenly and unexpectedly from heaven this mighty and wonderful and utterly unprecedented interruption. The significance of this claim that the supernatural birth of Jesus Christ is an event of history is openly admitted even by the critics of our faith. Take, for example, one of the champions of religious relativism and pluralism in our generation, John Hick, the English uh, religious philosopher. In his book, The Metaphor of God Incarnate, Hick admits that he's happy to believe in the incarnation as a religious idea, a metaphor of God's nearness to man. But he will have nothing to do with it as history as an event in the real world, as something that actually happened. He wants nothing to do with the Christmas history as it is related in the Bible. God's son being born a human child to a virgin mother in the days of Augustus and Quirinius. We cannot believe that God actually became a man in Jesus Christ, Hick argues, because if we did that, we would have to accept the implications of that history. We would have to then agree that Christianity is alone the truth about God and salvation. We would have to accept Christianity's exclusive claim. And we cannot do that. We cannot believe that. Hick rejects the incarnation as history, not because he has some proof that it didn't happen, but because he sees so clearly that to accept its historicity would require him to believe things he does not want to believe. Chief among them, Christianity alone, showing mankind the way of salvation. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. What a world of meaning in that, in that uh, delightful way of putting the situation. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The fields that are today identified as the shepherd's fields are some two miles from Bethlehem toward the Dead Sea and below the snow line. It's wonderful to imagine David as a young man, centuries before, walking over those very same fields, tending his father's flocks, fighting off the lion and the bear. Once again, it's interesting, the text does not tell us that Jesus was born at night, only that the appearance to the shepherds by the angels occurred that night. The Lord could have been born hours before, or for that matter, a day or two before. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about the Lord. The angels instinctively recognizing the significance of a word spoken by angels. God himself had spoken to them. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We thank you, Lord our God, for this great history and for the magnificent record of it that you have supplied us in your holy word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation. We thank you for his 30-some years in this world, living for us and then dying and rising again for us, and ascending to heaven and sitting down at the right hand of the Father for us to rule over this world on our behalf, and then at last to come to this earth again to gather us up and to take us to be with him forever. What a magnificent history this is. The parts of it that have already been written, the parts still to be written. Oh God, may it enter our hearts anew and afresh and with wonderful power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For many years, as you know uh, very well, the effort has been made in Western culture and particularly in American culture to domesticate Christmas, to diminish its controversial aspect. The Christmas message was in many ways, has been in many ways, made sentimental, harmless, altogether less distinctively Christian. And interestingly, that effort was entirely unintentionally aided by the translation of Luke chapter 2, verse 14, in the never-enough-praised King James Version of the Bible. In that English translation, for generations, Christians had heard the angels say to the shepherds in announcing the birth of the Messiah, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, Goodwill to men. It was that translation that Handel took up into his Messiah. It was that translation that was repeated in countless Christmas hymns and carols. We sang one of them at the opening of our service this morning. Well, there's nothing very controversial about saying or singing peace on earth, goodwill to men. Anyone, everyone can say that. You don't have to be a Christian, you don't even have to be religious to say that. Even if it were taken, as it sometimes was, following the translation 
in the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, to mean peace on earth to men of goodwill, there was again nothing distinctively Christian in that message either. Everyone naturally thinks that men of goodwill should be and will be blessed with peace to a greater measure than others. Who more than George Bailey should be happy at Christmas time? But no modern translation of the English Bible, no modern translation into English of the Bible, renders the angelic announcement that way any longer. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, is not, in fact, what the angels said to the shepherds. What they said was, as our New International Version has it, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. That is, the message of peace, the angels were announcing, the peace that was being brought from heaven by the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, was for people upon whom God's favor rests. The Revised Standard Version and the English Standard Version, based upon it, perhaps the two most authoritative English translations of the Bible, read, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That is to say, the good news is for people with whom God is pleased. There's no dispute as to the proper translation of verse 14. I won't bore you with the grammar. Don't need to. That's what the words mean. Everyone now admits it. But if God's favor rests upon certain people, the implication is clear that it doesn't rest on everyone, upon whom does that favor rest? No doubt the shepherds wondered that very thing as they pondered what they had been told. Who are God's favorites? In other words, with whom is God pleased? Well, the Christmas history is in fact full of such people. The Christmas history itself identifies the class of people upon whom God's favor rests. In the narratives of the birth of Jesus, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we're given a cross-section, a representative sampling of God's favorites. We have great men and small, rich and poor, men and women, young and old. It's the presence of these people, God's favor, God's favorites rather, who lend such simplicity, charm, beauty, humanity to what would otherwise be the narrative of a divine visitation so overwhelming, so otherworldly, as likely to leave us silent rather than singing at Christmas time. But add Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, the wise men, Simeon and Anna, all of whom are among some of the most attractive minor characters in the Bible. And you have a history that is so appealing to human beings that the celebration of them and their lives and the birth of Jesus Christ in which they had some part has become the lodestone of the world's calendar. No wonder that the one play that is performed every year is the story of Christ's birth. And these same people are the dramatis personae of that play. 
Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, the wise men, Anna and Simeon, these are God's favorites. These are those with whom he is pleased. And what of these men and women? What can we say about them? Some of them clearly had been believing people, devout people, long before the events of the Christmas history suddenly broke upon them and before they were taken up into the unfolding of the greatest thing that has ever happened. Anna, whom Joseph and Mary met in the temple, as we read later in this same Luke chapter 2, was a faithful old widow who had served and loved the Lord all her life. The same was true of Simeon and Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it certainly appears to have been the case that Joseph and Mary themselves were devout young people when the angel Gabriel first visited them. But we have no way of knowing that, and perhaps would not suppose it very likely, of the shepherds. That they were long before the fateful night men who loved and feared the Lord. Shepherds, as a result of their occupation, were people, we might say, who were rarely in church. Jewish evidence from an admittedly somewhat later period suggests that they were not, as a class, held in very high esteem among the public. As one put it, they weren't the sort of people to carefully distinguish between mine and yours. Perhaps a modern analogy to a particular class of individuals would be to the car mechanic who is suspected of charging for repairs you didn't need or which he didn't even perform. There's certainly nothing in the narrative to suggest that the angels appeared to them because they were the sort of people who were looking for the Messiah, the sort of praying men who would have deserved to have received such a visitation. Quite the contrary, they seem to be the prototype of all those little people and sinful people with whom the Lord Jesus would spend so much time during his ministry. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the other so-called sinners. And we might say the same thing, necessary changes being made, about the Magi who visited the baby shortly after his birth, as we read in Matthew chapter 2. There's nothing to suggest that they would have been believers in Israel's God, Before the appearance of the star, they, like the shepherds, appear to have been drawn into true and living faith, into the love of God by the events of the Christmas history themselves. How different these people, a priest and his wife, a Galilean tradesman and his fiancée, political advisors from some great eastern state, an elderly widow some sheep grazers, an old man whose occupation we don't know. A perfect cross-section of human life. To be honest, not a one of them would have been known to history, even the great magi from the East, had they not found themselves by the providence of God in the midst of events that were to transform the world and human life forever. But there can be no doubt that magnificent as is the figure of the child, the long-promised king whose coming is heralded by an angelic host. It is the other actors in the drama that have made the story so compelling 
and in the same way have explained it and its implications. How like God to give to mere human beings such large roles, such important roles in his story. The two sides of salvation always go together in the Bible. The divine work for us and the divine work in us. In the Bible, we're always being shown what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And as a result, what God then does in us by his Holy Spirit. We see salvation in the birth of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. But we see it as surely in the effect of this divine grace upon the people who inhabit the gospel story. And we see that second part of salvation. We see it in flesh and blood as beautifully in these people who grace the history of the birth of Jesus Christ as we see it anywhere else in the Bible. They become, in this narrative, representative Christians. We see in them what we ought to see in ourselves. Whether we have been Christians for a long time, or are just now become Christians, or are on the cusp of becoming Christians ourselves, we see in them what God's grace is intended to make of us. We discover in them sinners Saved by grace in Jesus Christ. All of this is all the more clearly depicted because of the contrast between these good men and women and the other people who are found in the Christmas history, which is populated by knaves as well as by saints. These knaves are not God's favorites. They are not the people in whom he is well pleased. They form the backdrop against which God's favorites are the more clearly and beautifully revealed. The indifferent, distracted, worldly politicians concerned about everything else but God their maker and his will for their lives. The aggressively hostile local ruler, King Herod, who is losing his mind in his hatred and his paranoia. The indifferent religious community in Jerusalem who, even when the Magi appear and announce that they have followed the Messiah's star from the east, can't be bothered to walk the few miles to Bethlehem to see if it could really be so. The simple Bethlehemites, among whom could not be found apparently one to offer a warm place in their house for a needy couple from the north. And the indifference... And the outright hostility, the refusal to welcome the Son of God, this too is representative in the Christmas history. A 19th century theologian wrote a book in defense of the Christian faith entitled On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. And a book of that title could have been written at any point in the history of of the Christian church and certainly can be written and is being written by good men today. The culture despisers of our faith, the Jerusalem theologians, Herod the king, the Roman politicians, the comfortable well-to-do in Judea. They exist in still larger numbers today 
And there are plenty of common people who equally despise the true Christian message, Christmas message, and its implications. In fact, what would really be a surprise would be if suddenly enormous numbers of people, the majority of a population, began welcoming the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, into their hearts as Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, the Magi, Simeon and Anna so beautifully did. History has continued to unfold as it did in those moments those embracing and welcoming the Lord Jesus and being transformed by their encounter with him and those who refused to do so or were indifferent to the reports that they heard. What do we see in these people who are God's favorites? We see Mary and Zechariah writing hymns of praise to God, great hymns that are still sung today the Magnificat and the Benedictus from Luke chapter 1. We see shepherds first cheerfully obeying their instructions to the letter and then spreading the news of what they had heard and seen to everyone they met. We see Simeon lifting his heart in thanksgiving to God. We see the Magi making a great journey from the east to lay their offerings of gold, frankincense, and myrrh at the feet of of the newborn king. We see Joseph and Mary bowing in submission to the will of God that turned their lives upside down. What do you see in these people that you shouldn't see in yourself? We have in Luke and Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus great stress, to be sure, laid on salvation in its objectivity, its divine accomplishment. We read of the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies of a coming king. We read of his coming to save his people from their sins. We read of his being Emmanuel, God with us. So much more reminds us that salvation is the work and the gift and the achievement of God, accomplished in the history of the incarnate Son. But alongside this revelation of salvation in its objectivity is one of the most beautiful revelations in the Bible of salvation in its subjectivity. We have here in flesh and blood and among all sorts of people the transformation of life, the making beautiful of human life, the recreation of fallen human life that happens through an encounter with Jesus Christ and the embrace of God's salvation. Perhaps especially in the case of the shepherds and the magi. Lives are transformed that were beforehand untouched by this grace and this salvation. Far off magi, nearby shepherds become saints through a believing encounter with the incarnate Son of God. We must never forget this. God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ is intended to change human beings and to make them good. You have indeed an echo of this in the secular sentimental version of Christmas. I don't know how many stories there are nowadays told in book and film of misers who become generous, workaholics who finally realize the importance of family, industrialists who come to understand that people are more important than commerce, These are 
fictional echoes of the transformations of life and of the righteous character of the people who inhabit the Christmas history. But what they leave out, these modern accounts, is what is most important, namely the cause of a saintly life, namely faith in Jesus Christ, and the nature of that life, love for God and a desire to serve Him. Scrooge is Christmas without the Incarnation. We had an example of this last Friday evening at the presentation of Handel's Messiah by the Tacoma Symphony Orchestra and Chorus. In introducing the work, the conductor attempted to represent it as a musical work of particular relevance to us in our difficult political and economic times. He said, it's a work that proceeds from darkness to light. It's a work that trades in hope. But he made no mention in his introduction of its actual subject, the birth, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. In Handel's Messiah, there is no hope apart from that history, apart from that divine intervention on man's behalf by a merciful God who sent his Son to save his people from their sins. You can't transform Scrooge into a shepherd or Simeon or one of the Magi. You can't make Scrooge one of God's favorites, even by sending him three angels, if the result is not that same faith in the incarnate God and love for Christ. And when submission to God has not yet become the reason for Scrooge's new generosity and love of people. Those upon whom God's favor rests, those with whom God is pleased in this history, are all Jesus Christ people. They did what they did. They became what they became because of their encounter with him, even as an infant. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, the Magi, Simeon and Anna, they are part of the history of the gospel itself, the work of God in the life of sinful men. The Scrooge stories are fables without a gospel, and as a result remain and must remain fantasies and myths. But the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the shepherds, the magi, the others, that's being repeated in the real world every day. And everywhere we look, as it has been throughout the history of the world since the time of the Lord's birth. There are fictional echoes of their lives, true enough. But much more important, there are vast multitudes of people whose life history repeats that of these wonderful individuals whom we encounter in Matthew and Luke and their narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. They may not be priests or shepherds or political advisors, but their encounter with the incarnate Son of God was as life-changing for them and in the same ways as it was for those long ago. Many of you have read of Henry Martin, one of the greatest heroes of the worldwide gospel and missionary enterprise when it was begun again and afresh in the early years of the 19th century. Henry Martin was perhaps the brightest light in that galaxy of spiritual young men who sat at the feet 
of Charles Simeon in Cambridge while they were students at the university, absorbing not only the full-blooded gospel from that great preacher, but a missionary zeal as well. Martin, upon his graduation and ordination, uh, served as Simeon's assistant for two years before leaving for India. He was in India only five years, though his erudition in languages was so great that although he knew nothing of the language upon his arrival, within five years he had produced a valuable translation of the New Testament in Hindi. He planned to return to England for a recruiting visit in hopes of reunion and perhaps marriage with the woman he loved and had left behind, and to recover his own own, uh, health, which had begun to fail during his time in India. And so he began a trip overland toward uh, Europe. He paused in Persia, worked on a translation of the Persian Bible, engaged in apologetics and evangelism among the Muslim doctors of theology. But finally, still in poor health, he made his way onward home, uh, but collapsed and died in what is now Turkey, some 70 miles south of the Dead Sea, in some small village. While still in India, working in the town of Kanpur, where our own Frank and Esther File worked for 40 years in the middle of the 20th century, Henry Martin would often gather a crowd of people around the front door of his house, many of them beggars, and proclaim to them the message of the Son of God who had visited this world for the salvation of people. One day, as it happened, an Indian court official happened to be walking by and paused to listen. Wholly unbeknownst to Henry Martin, the words he heard that day about Jesus Christ, the Savior of those who trust in him, about his birth in Bethlehem, and his 30 years of living a sinless life, his death on the cross, uh, undergoing in our place the punishment for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, those words took root and brought this Indian official in time to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometime after Martin had left India, the man presented himself for baptism, a daring thing for a Hindu man to do, still more for a substantial Hindu man to do in those days as today. He then gave up his large income, his position of prestige in Hindu society, for a catechist's pay of 60 rupees per month. In due time, he received ordination as an Anglican priest. He was Henry Martin's only Indian convert, so far as we know, and Martin himself never knew of him. But Bishop Reginald Heber, the Anglican missionary statesman of India in those early days and author of the hymn, The Son of God Goes Forth to War, tells in his Indian journal of meeting this man who had taken a new name at his baptism, Abdul Messiah, servant of the Messiah. Heber spoke of how greatly impressed he was by this man's goodness, the nobility of his Christian character. Just like the Magi, just like the shepherds, a man who had no interest in living for the living God, 
no real love for God, heard news of the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God. And believing, he responded in faith and in grateful submission to the King who had come into the world for his salvation. And the grace of God made something supremely beautiful out of his life. The Christmas history is in one respect unrepeatable. There will never again be an incarnation of God. There will never again be the life of the Son of God incognito in this world. There will never again be a man born of a woman who is born under the law to redeem those under the law. All of that can happen, need happen, but once salvation has been accomplished forever. But in another respect, and a very important respect, the Christmas history is being repeated every day. As men and women of every stripe, class, nation, language, background, personality, hear news of Jesus Christ, encounter him, and welcome him, love him, and serve him. Do you wish to know whether God's favor rests upon you? Do you want to know if, when the angels sang their gloria to the shepherds, they were bringing good news to you? Do you want to know if God is pleased with you? There's a way to know this, a sure and certain way. Welcome the king born in Bethlehem, as the shepherds and the wise men did before you. Ponder these things in your heart, as Mary did before you. Sing praise to God for his great gift, as Mary and Zechariah did before you. Give thanks to God for the gift of his son, as Simeon and Anna did before you. Spread the news to others, as the shepherds did so gratefully and gladly before you. The baby who was once laid in a manger is now in heaven, but he makes his favor known still today to willing hearts by his Holy Spirit. Amen.